Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we have a special Christmas slash Advent edition of our Dark Ops. And so listeners who've been following us for a long time should probably know that we do these Dark Ops episodes occasionally where I talk with Mark Lavecki about different movies. And usually we've covered a lot of war movies, I think. And today we're going to be doing a different one. We're going to be doing It's a Wonderful Life. And this episode should be dropping on December 20th, which will be the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life hitting theaters. First off, Mark, thanks for joining us on the Provcast. Always good to be here. For me, I, I don't remember the last time I really watched the movie from beginning to end in one sitting before this year. I may never have done it. It always seems like it's been a movie that's on in the background while with family and other stuff. But it was interesting for me to rewatch the movie and also to go back and read the original story. But for you, like, is this a favorite holiday movie or what? What's your Christmas tradition with this movie? Uh, Yeah, I I don't know that there is per se a Christmas tradition with me in this movie. Uh, It certainly wasn't growing up. Uh, my, you know, my parents loved all the old movies, but I don't know that I ever saw this one either. I think my first exposure to this was through a Cheers episode in which Sam and Woody and everybody else in the bar are watching It's a Wonderful Life and weeping. And uh, I was sort of mystified and had never seen it at that point. And I think I went out and found it somewhere and watched it. So I was probably when I was in, I don't know, junior high or high school. And then no subsequent yearly um, sort of repetition of that. Uh, we just showed our children, uh, and this is probably, you know, remedial for some people, and though we're going to get hate mail for having waited so long. Uh, but this year, we finally showed our children the movie, and it wasn't because you know we were trying to keep them from the uh, the movie, or we didn't think they were ready for it, or you know, there's not a lot of profanity or cursing, violence or nudity in it, so it, it should have been fair game earlier on. But here they are, 15 and 13, and we finally saw it this year, and they really liked it. Uh, so maybe it will now become, if something can, this late in their early lives, become a tradition. But uh, up until now, it hasn't been. So I, I've probably seen the whole thing maybe three times in my life. Yeah, like I said, I, re-watching it last week, it was interesting because, yeah, you see all these bits and pieces that I've seen before. But like some of the scenes, like, I completely forgot. Like There's the scene where they open the gym floor and everyone or the uh, characters fall into the water but right there's a there's a pool underneath the gym the basketball floor right and they open and everybody falls in incredibly dangerous design terrible yeah i've heard of other schools having that though so that was a thing but yeah like so i i have nightmares about it (laughs) yeah so uh, but you have uh read the original story beforehand correct uh, yeah, that's correct. And, and I should have said, uh, in terms of tradition, uh, reading The Greatest Gift uh, by Philip Van Dorenstern has been a family tradition for uh, probably 10 years. So we, we've, you know, which, it, which again makes it slightly bizarre that we've never actually sat down and watched the movie. Uh, but probably for at least a decade, we've, we've read the story every Christmas. It's very short. It's a one sitting, you know, 15 minutes in. And that's it. But uh, that has been the tradition. And I read the story for the first time last week and kind of in preparation for this podcast. And the main reason why I wanted to read it was because since the Great Recession, I've seen a lot 
of uh, commentary that looks at this movie through an economic angle. And I think that's part of the product of the fact that the Great Recession happened because of subprime mortgages, and George Bailey is basically giving out subprime mortgages to people. And I actually, you know, look through like old, an old project I did back in around 2007, 2008 or so. I was collecting old, or not old, but at that point, current political cartoons. And I found one in my stash recently of picture of George Bailey standing on the bridge. And it's like, it's a wonderful life updated. And you have the angel who basically says, you know, now that I understand your situation, you should just go ahead and jump. And <laughs> yeah, and it was part of this idea of like people were reexamining the value of banking after this great recession was happening. And on one side, you have people who said we need more bankers like George Bailey, who are generous, who give you know bank loans to these needy people. And then you had others who were like, no, Henry Potter is the hero. He is the one who uh, is providing a good, solid business, and the town would not exist without him. Um, and I can link to some of these arguments in the podcast notes, but I, you know, kind of watching the movie, reading the story, and uh, kind of reconsidering these arguments, I kind of agree that Henry Potter is actually, he provides a good service for the community, even though he's a jerk of a character to the point where he's kind of unbelievable. But... I think personally, the town needs both of them. The town needs the competition between them. And even though I've heard some people say that this movie is perhaps anti-capitalist, and the FBI, I believe, had a file on this during the Red Scare to look into whether or not it was anti-capitalist or pro-communist propaganda. And uh, I think it's actually pro-capitalist, even though I think George Bailey's a bad businessman, and I think that the, you know, Uncle uh, Billy needs to... Uh, retire and stop handling the money. But I think the movie is pro-capitalist. And so for me, that's one of the things like when I was reading it and watching the movie, um, I wanted to consider. Um, also, like in the story, we can talk about this in a second, but in the original story, there is no mention of the economic factor. And he doesn't even own the bank. He's a bank clerk. But do you have any thoughts on uh, like how the movie presents the economic angle? Yeah, I think you say a lot of, there's a lot of good that you're saying there. Uh, I agree with it. It's not, the movie is not an anti-capitalist uh, propaganda piece. Uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that it is, given, as you pointed out, the, the, not even the character of Potter, but the caricature that Potter represents. Uh, but you'd have to qualify it if you wanted to make that claim credibly. You'd have to say, look, it's anti-predatory capitalist, or it's, you know, it's, it's, anti-capitalist jerk, right? Uh, and the jerk part, I think, is important. So the only pushback I would give to what you've said is to recall that at numerous occasions, the film goes out of its way to portray Potter in a particular light. He's not simply providing uh, service to the town's poor. He's certainly not providing it benevolently. He's portrayed as a slumlord, uh, somebody who has, you know, because he controls the properties, the town's poor can really only go to him for housing, and it's inadequate and dangerous housing, and it's overpriced. And that's, uh, you know, the, the power against which George Bailey and the Savings and Loan Bank um, is vying. And so that does nothing against your, your claim that it's not an anti-capitalist film. In fact, I think it substantiates it and strengthens it because the 
the film isn't talking about capitalism per se. It's simply talking about somebody who is taking advantage of other human beings, right? Right. And in this debate, I think it's also, it would be, it's good to remember that the director, Frank Capra, was, from what I was reading, a Republican who criticized government intervention. So the idea that he would produce a pro-communist piece is very odd and bizarre. I think it would have been interesting for the movie to kind of look into uh, the, a crony capitalist angle, because there's a scene briefly where a congressman is calling Potter, and Potter's like, I don't have time to talk to him. Like, I'll call him back. He doesn't even talk to the guy. He, he tells his assistant to tell the congressman to wait. And so like, there's something there that, you know, he, he clearly has some political connections that he could abuse. And I think that would have been an interesting angle to pull on. But that's also, I think, more, you know, I think more people are, con they're probably concerned then too. But people are more concerned about that now than they are about bank runs, about the idea of like corruption in government. Sure. Yeah, that's right. So when I was reading the original story, you know, one of the things I noticed is like, one, Potter isn't a character. There's actually very few characters in the book and or in the story. And as you said, it's a one sitting reading, like reading that takes about a quarter of the time of watching the movie. Right. And like I said earlier, like we don't go into any of the banking stuff. He's a bank clerk, not a bank owner. And but the main point of the story, though, instead of like the banking and the economic side, it's the value of an individual's life. So uh, what do you see the story in the movie saying about the importance of the individual? Yeah, that's great. Uh, it says a lot, obviously. And, and I think, you know, to give the film due credit, it's, it's rare where a movie improves upon the book. And I think in this case, in, in some... Uh, I was going to qualify that and say in some ways, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and say this, the movie improves upon the book. The book's lovely, um, but the book's lovelier when you've got a sense of what, of the fullness of the movie. Uh, it really tells the story in a, in, a, in a far more encompassing way of George Bailey and the life that he's led. And we had talked prior to starting the recording that within the copy of The Greatest Gift that you and I have, Philip Van Dorenstern's daughter, provides an afterword. And in that, she's talking about some of the motivations that Capra talked about uh, when he looked retrospectively at having produced the film. And he says very much that the film was always supposed to be about the worth of the individual, as you said. And people have picked up this from Time Out of Mind, the, the natural historian. I think it even says in the, in the afterword, uh, Stephen Goode uh, is talking about the awesome power of apparent insignificance. And he's talking about this in light of, you know, maybe the small organisms in the natural world and the outsized role that they play in the greater ecology. Uh, but he applied that uh, to the story that's being told in the book. And so for Capra, it was the worth of the individual. He says at some point that he wanted his story to champion man, uh, to place um, man at the center, to plead man's case, to protect man against the degradation of his dignity, his spirit, or his divinity. And I think this is where the Potter character plays a significant role, right? He's, he's kind of a, you know, a force, uh, you know, a, um, an impersonal technocratic power that is rapacious uh, and consuming and against which good people need to vie. And especially coming after uh, World War II, hard on the heels of uh, Jimmy Stewart and uh, Capra, both coming out of uniform, 
these types of motivations had to have been, uh, you know, still sort of present in in the American psyche. Uh, this is what we've been doing for the last half decade. And then he also talks about the viability of man, by which I think he he's really talking about the movie being a testament to human resilience, uh, that human beings can endure. That's what we do. And so I think from Capra's perspective, that's there. I had said also earlier that I've been reading a book by Leon Cass, uh, his newest book on uh, the book of Exodus from the Hebrew scriptures. And there he talks uh, in, in much the same way and, and using surprisingly quite a lot of the same language that Capra uses uh, when talking about the movie. In Exodus, Leon Cass sees uh, the book being primarily about the process of people formation. You know, how do people push against technocratic evils that commodify individuals? Maybe it's Egypt, right, in this sense. And it's the, uh, the, the flight from a kind of enslavement to a liberation. He asks the questions about what makes a community. And you certainly see in Capra's film, again, more so than in the book, uh, that Jimmy Stewart's character, uh, George Bailey, has, you know, the worth of the individual, but the worth of the individual as a part of a greater community, you know, first a family, uh, but then the wider community within, um, and I've just completely lost the name of the, the town. I was going to call it Pottersville, but that's only in the dystopian. Bedford Falls. Future. What was that? Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls, precisely. You know, so the, the, the movie is asking not just the worth of the individual, but the role they play in creating a community of people and what that community of people represents. Uh, Leon Cass sees in the book of Exodus a continuation of the story that is first being told in Genesis. Uh, and in Genesis, the story is in the beginning, literally, uh, about a world that is called into being under an intelligent and order creating command. And analogously so, so too are human beings. We're called into an intelligent and order creating command. Uh, we're called to be mensch, right? We're called to you know, live in search, as Cass says, of an intelligible and order-creating summons. You know, we're, we're, we're called to be significant. So we're called to significance, uh, called to recognize that you know, we are here neither by choice uh, nor really by merit. And Cass, in his introduction to his book, goes to call, call human life an undeserved gift from powers that are not at our disposal. And I think the tie-in here to the, the book being called The Greatest Gift uh, is pretty significant. I think they're tracking, uh, you know, they're dancing to the same tune here. Um, human beings feel a need to justify uh, the gift of life, uh, to make something out of the indebtedness we feel, uh, you know, for the, for, the, for the opportunity to exist an obligation to answer the call to be or to live a worthy life. And I think Copper's on to that. Uh, I think that's George Bailey's crisis, right? He's lived in this, as he keeps saying repeatedly in the movie and a couple times in the book, you know, in this crummy little mud hole of a town where he feels insignificant, where he's had all these ambitions and the things he's wanted to do with his life to live large. And he doesn't actually know what it means to live large, in a sense. Uh, he has lived a larger life in his crummy little town than most human beings who have had a, an impression on a wider world. And I think the movie talks, as, as Stephen Gould said, about the, you know, the power of the seemingly insignificant. 
And I think that's partly why the movie resonates with so many people. Yeah, I think that's why the movie where even though it wasn't popular when it first came out, after it dropped out of copyright and TV stations started to run it all the time, it, it wouldn't have become popular at that point if it didn't pull on those strings. So the movie kind of reminded me of this song, Bus Driver, by Cademan's Call. I think I heard it back in elementary school for the first time, maybe, but I'm not sure exactly when it came out. But it's about this bus driver who uh, you would think he's not that significant of a person, but it talks about all the different people who rely upon him. And he knows about all the different lives of what these people do. And it's a good reminder, one, of our own worth of like what we do in our day-to-day lives, like yeah, I know there's different um, books and pastors and stuff that emphasize, you know, that even if you're not in ministry, like your vocation is still important. It is still a ministry if you're even if you're a cobbler and, you know, you don't necessarily make good shoes by putting crosses on all of your shoes, but by making just good shoes. Good shoes. And that's how you serve God. And I think that's an important thing for a lot of us to remember, because very, you know, a proportion of us are you know, a few of us will be ministers, most of us won't. But, you know, this bus driver and George Bailey and these other characters, they touch upon so many different people's lives. And uh, I think that's a good reminder for the Christmas season to remember. And I think, you know, so for us, but also for others, like, you know, don't look down on people. Like, several years ago, The Economist had a survey. I was, you know, a subscriber. And so The Economist sent a survey out and they were trying to figure out who their readers were. And so they had this long list of very detailed, like bankers and policymakers and all these, they want to figure out what's your job. And then on the last one was like unskilled. And they're like examples like plumber. I'm like, okay, no, like a plumber is not unskilled. Like he's very skilled. I don't want an unskilled plumber in my house. I want the best one there. Like they know more than me on a lot of things. So I don't, you know, I think it's very insulting to say that about people. And so um, I think this movie, like in that song, like should remind us of the value of the people around us, not just our own value, but their value as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, for sure, there's, there's, there's something to be said about the sanctity of all vocations, right? Um, I don't go in for any sort of uh, vocational agnosticism or agnosticism, vocational um, Gnosticism in which there are certain vocations that are more significant spiritually than others. I, I simply don't believe that, as you've said. You know, the Christian cobbler who makes great shoes, um, you know, is is doing a profound service. And that person is honoring the image of God that is in him that separates him from the beasts. Uh, and a pastor uh, could do simply the opposite. He could dishonor the image of God in him that separates him from a beast and be a beast. So it doesn't matter the, the job you do um, per se. You know, I think everybody should, um, when they have the opportunity, you know, to to do the things for which they think they were created to do. And here we could talk about aspirations and dreams and passions and things like that. Uh, but it remains true that not every human being has the wonderful privilege of being paid for the things that they're passionate about. Um, sometimes putting milk on the table, um, you know, is or always putting milk on the table is the primary thing. Uh, and you can't always couple that with the things that you know really revs your engine. Uh, but no matter where you find yourself, um, you can honor the image of God that's in you, uh, and do the vocations that that you've been given to do to the ability that you can do them. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's that's not insignificant. That's not nothing. It's a great luxury. 
uh, to be paid to do the things you love. Not all of us can do that. Yeah. Also talking about the individuals, one of the things in the movie that I found interesting, I hadn't thought about before, but was the portrayal of the Italian and Catholic the immigrants. Italians. Yeah. And uh, because at this time, 1946, you know, there's a huge you know divide between the Catholics and the Protestants or the, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So the, uh, the movie is interesting in portraying that. I think there's a couple of times where they, some of the portrayal you probably wouldn't be able to get away with, like when uh, the Martini family brings a goat with them to the Burbs. Like, I don't think you could do that um, today anymore. <laughs> like, you couldn't have that portrayal. But <laughs> it's also interesting because Capra was Italian, or he was born in Italy. He became a U.S. citizen in 1920. So as an adult, he comes over. I don't know if he came over, but... He, you know, in his 20s, he became a U.S. citizen, right. and so he's portraying his community. And so I found that to be a very interesting thing. And you have Potter, who is, you know, very critical of them. Talking about earlier, like, Christianity and Crisis and reading some of those old articles from 1946, even there, like, they were very hostile, not hostile, they were very antagonistic towards the Catholics and sure. and there and in this movie you do see a scene where they do do a sign of the cross so they are portraying them as catholics um so there there is that bit there but you know and christianity in crisis they're showing them or they're criticizing the catholic view and i think they are wrong for that i think they should have considered the viewpoint of the catholics about the communist um more strongly or more seriously and so but that's something that you know today I've seen throughout my life Catholics and Protestants working together in politics, and that's really been the product of decades of work for these communities to get better together. But in this movie, like reconsidering, rethinking about like that, that I think that probably was a big deal to kind of show uh, this George Bailey character whose best friend is the Catholic guy who he gets a house for or helps gets a house for. Yeah, Martini. Yeah, Martini. Do you have any thoughts on that angle of how the movie portrays Italians? No, I think, I, I think that's good. I think, I think that's a very good reminder that we have to be careful when we look at old films or read old books or, you know, read old thinkers or whatever, that we have to remember that, um, you know, to be displaced by 50, 60 or now 75 years can be in, in many cases a very significant thing. Um, you have to remember that in 1946, when the movie was released, Italians were not yet white, right? Um, and so the portrayal of them being, uh, you know, good citizens and you could be friends with them, you know, the, the, it w was, was uh, significant. It was, it was making a kind of statement. It might not have been a statement as strong as if they were black characters, uh, but it was not an insignificant uh, portrayal of George Bailey being friends. Uh, that was a significant thing. And uh, the portrayal of Martini's bar, uh, you know, the guy's a, a bar owner, uh, and Martini's was a uh, respectable place uh, where respectable people could go and drink. But because George Bailey, in his sort of dystopian vision, where he sees what life in Bedford Falls would have been like if he had never been born, uh, he realizes that somehow or another, and he probably wouldn't be able to trace it out, uh, but Martini uh, never becomes the bar owner. Uh, and not only for that fact, but other facts as well, the bar is a seedy, sort of dangerous place. 
you know, I think it's significant that the Italian character was somebody who had made it a respectable establishment. So yeah, I think the Italians come out well in this. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, like, definitely, I think you see Frank Capra's influence there. And so, yeah, it's a view that we don't think about today in 2021 as much. My final question or final topic here is why do you think people should watch this movie at Christmas? Oh, well, they should. Uh, or do you think they should? Uh, well, I do. Um, I mean, one, for all the reasons we're talking about now. Uh, it's a great reminder of the worth of the individual. It's a great reminder of what it means to live a life uh, that honors the image of God within you. Uh, even though, and I suppose this is a, a, a something to be noted, it's it's also interesting that I think in the movie, well, I know in the movie because it's not portrayed in the book. In the movie, George Bailey, on a couple of occasions, at least at least one significant one, I think, on the bridge makes a point of pointing out that he's not a prayerful person. Um, you know, so it's also, you know, a good testament, maybe, uh, you know, as man struggles to find significance and meaning and uh, to, to honor uh, his or her worth, uh, it's important to remember that absent uh, a, a real sense of the divine, the ability to find that worth uh, is maybe more difficult. And the film presupposes, the whole storyline presupposes the existence of the divine. You've got the guardian angel that comes down to um, save George Bailey. You know, in the very beginning of the film, you have this bizarre sort of celestial conversation that happens presumably between angels. Maybe one of them is supposed to be God. I wasn't quite able to, to put that together. Uh, so you watch it because it, 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 it it proclaims mankind and it points out that even the seemingly insignificant can be, uh, can live to be a mensch, right? Which in, you know, the, the, the Yiddish understanding to, to, you know, to be, to be a genuine human being worthy of not just our existence, uh, but the stamp of the divine that's on us. So that, that alone, I think is a great reason. Uh, the other reason is more cosmetic. I mean, it's Jimmy Stewart. Any opportunity you have to watch Jimmy Stewart, take it. Any opportunity you have to watch Donna Reed, take it. Right? These are, are wonderful actors in a wonderful story and uh, pretty good reasons to watch anything. I believe Jimmy Stewart also said that this was his favorite movie to be a part of. Yeah, he, yeah, that's the, I've, I read that as well. I found that staggering. That's a, that's a real statement because I, th I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a great film. I don't know that it's a extraordinary film. Uh, so it's uh, it's that that would be fascinating to know more about. Um, I think what can't be denied is the impact that this film has had on people um, who, through watching the travails of George Bailey, began to sense uh, the subtle ways in which they too might have been living significant lives, even when they didn't realize it. And if the film can do that, then sure, that's a a, a good candidate for anybody's favorite film. Yeah, for readers of Providence, you'll also know that we have been doing a series of hope during the Advent season, and so uh, I think this movie kind of fits into that, the idea of like giving people hope that even if they're in a job that they don't like, a job that is um, seems insignificant to them, like during the Great Recession, I had to work at a uh, Best Buy for a little while, which 
you know, wasn't my first choice, but, you know, it was um, an eye-opening experience to see how, like, all the people in that store benefit other people's lives. And so I think this movie can give people hope for um, the work that they do, that it is, um, it serves a purpose, even if they don't understand what God's doing in that moment with their life. Undoubtedly. I have been a garbage man, a janitor, um, a line cook. I have never done an insignificant job. They might have stank, but they weren't insignificant. Yes. So, Mark, thanks for uh, joining us on the Provcast. Mark, thanks for having me. <laughs>